0: if you have a brain you have bias so let's just own it some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted and even who we approach to be our friends welcome to breaking the bias a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity because sharing our stories is how real belonging happens
1: Companies can really leverage this pandemic if they wanted to uh, and use it as a time to shine because employees now more so than ever want to feel connected, they want to feel supported, and they absolutely will remember how you treated them during such a critical period.
0: I'm Holly Corbett, Director of Content at Consciously Unbiased. On this episode of Breaking the Bias, we're speaking to Ruth Umo, the Diversity and Inclusion Editor at Forbes Media. Ruth shares why companies who continue to value diversity during these uncertain times with the coronavirus will be more likely to survive. Here's what she has to say. You wrote in an article that companies in the U.S. spend about $8 Eight billion dollars a year on diversity yeah. training
1: uh-huh.
0: I think companies are will increase or, or decrease their focus on DNI efforts in light of this public health crisis
1: uh, it's that's tough to say I mean it's it's very easy to let diversity and inclusion uh, fall to the wayside when you have an issue that says, Catastrophic and global for lack of a better word, uh, as this pandemic. And it also doesn't help that companies' DNI initiatives are generally the first to go during a bear market or, or when there's market volatility. Um, but this is really now the time to drill in on DNI because the business case is just so overwhelming. Uh, at this juncture, Companies need employees who are highly productive, uh, who are engaged, who are representative of the US population and the global population at that, um, so that the overall company can really think creatively and innovatively and pivot as needed, which is going to be critical if if they want to still be standing at the end of this pandemic. Um, So that said, I do think that companies will increase their focus on diversity and inclusion efforts in light of this public health crisis. If they don't increase it, they'll at least maintain the status quo. Uh, But more so, because their employees and consumers are holding their feet to the fire, they're watching corporate leaders every move, and they have really set a keen eye on how they're navigating this pandemic i mean everyone's now looking to whole foods and amazon because of these sickens and these walkouts and so you know the public is really judging corporate leaders based on how they're treating their employees some people are no longer you know shopping on amazon some people are no longer going to whole foods grocery stores so it does make a difference and if you as i said before if you want to make it through this pandemic, this global crisis, um, then you are really going to have to show that you value your employee base. Mm,
0: yeah. So, so in light of, a, of this huge public health crisis, how companies respond, how leaders respond and treat their employees says, I think, says a lot about the Absolutely. brand values. Yeah. Um, so what what are you seeing in terms of companies who are doing it right when it comes to handling the crisis and uh, treating their employees properly?
1: Yeah, so things like uh, benefits like paid parental leave um, and workplace flexibility, they've always been popular, right? But they have since taken on Uh, and even greater meaning now because employees obviously have familial obligations. Um, So companies that are approaching this pandemic correctly, they're offering adjustable work schedules to meet the needs of working parents or um, even caregivers, those who have to take care of their elderly parents. They have to go grocery shopping for their elderly parents, you know, who can't go in person. Um, They have to balance the full-time responsibilities of their professional and personal lives. Uh, So for instance, They're giving their teams the option to bow out of morning meetings because they have to make breakfast for their children. They're encouraging employees to set up blocks of time where they can't be reached so they can spend time with loved ones or even just to refresh and focus on their mental Mm well-being. It all boils down to leading with empathy uh, and being more accommodating because these obviously aren't normal times. Uh, strong DNI initiatives in times of crisis lead to stronger engagement and employee loyalty, which ultimately leads to higher retention rates on the back end. And a number of companies are realizing that, so they're hosting virtual coffee chats, um, virtual town halls where employees can air out their concerns. They're taking a temperature check on all employees and making sure that everyone, organization-wide, really feels seen and really feels heard and one more thing holly one important aspect of dni that i think is often overlooked is socioeconomic levels and i was talking to a colleague of mine and this is when it really clicked for me because she's an entry level employee working from home right so if you're an executive working from home it might not be too much of a financial burden for you but for a low-wage entry-level employee, you now have to make sure that you have a strong phone pan- plan and pay for your phone bill. Make sure that you're always on high-speed Wi-Fi. Um, there's increased electricity usage because you're home all day, and so some companies are also allowing their lower-wage employees to expense certain bills. So there's a, there's a very creative way to tackle DNI um, in this kind of new normal that we have set up amid the pandemic.
0: Yeah yeah and I think you're right there are so many um dni issues and topics that you know really weren't at the forefront of the conversation on until this um public health crisis uh but I do think that in a lot of ways this this situation is amplifying exactly why we need to increase our our dni efforts and I also think it'll do things such as you know help normalize caregiving in the workplace because now you're you know the separation of your work self and your personal self um is much more difficult when you're on zoom calls and and doing all those things so it's it's interesting to see how this will shift workplace culture and like you said ruth empathy is so important i think when we know people um and we know them beyond just their job title and their role in the workplace when we know who they are personally, that creates empathy, that creates caring, yes. and caring creates action. And this crisis, I think, is really bringing us all together and illustrating how really we are all connected. Exactly. We, maybe we weren't before. Um, also mental health has always been, um, you know, a, a, a issue a big issue in the workplace, um, and an important issue. Uh, it's one that has also been stigmatized, and mm-hmm. I think now, obviously, every mental health and mental wellness is more important than ever as we're in these wildly uncertain times that are generating anxiety. I'm wondering um, how are you seeing companies address mental health during COVID?
1: Yeah, so this has been a really interesting one for me to cover. Um, Obviously, companies have had to act fast in addressing this remote work environment. Not only are we, as you said, in a period of wild uncertainty and unrest, but many of us, even those of us who don't have chronic mental health ailments, we're experiencing increased feelings of loneliness and isolation, especially people like me who live in a studio apartment in New York by themselves. Um, We're feeling heightened anxieties, some depression, and just a general cloud of mental unwellness and moodiness. So this is really when communication early onset communication is key. Um, Alert your employees regarding all of the mental health resources that are available to them, whether that's free meditation apps like Headspace or Calm, uh, crisis hotlines, New York has one, uh, teletherapy. Have your managers do daily or weekly check-ins with direct reports. I think Starbucks is a solid example. And They're a solid example for two reasons. One is that they've had this really strong focus on mental health for a long time. And so the companies who are really coasting uh, through this period are those who had proactive strategies um, rather than those who are now being reactive. Um, And so their latest mental health initiative, um, they announced earlier this month that they're now going to be providing all US-based employees uh, and their family members with access to 20 therapy sessions through a mental health provider called Lyra Health. So employees are able to search for mental health professionals confidentially, um, look up mental health professionals who meet their individual needs, and they're able to immediately book an in-person, well, I guess it wouldn't be in-person any longer, but a video appointment or virtual appointment with a therapist or a coach, and it's completely free. So companies can really leverage this pandemic if they wanted to, Uh, and use it as a time to shine because employees now more so than ever want to feel connected. They want to feel supported and they absolutely will remember how you treated them during such a critical period.
0: Also wondering, so are you seeing any other like new emerging
1: diversity and inclusion trends happening right now? It's still a bit early to see any major new trends. I believe lockdown started, at least in my company, I believe lockdown started in early March when they officially told us to go home. But I do think, as you noted earlier, that mental health has really come to the forefront uh, as D&I leaders try to grapple with a virtual workforce. Um, Looking ahead, though, given all the layoffs, um, the furloughment, the hiring freezes. It's going to be super interesting to see whether companies hit their diversity targets across all levels of the company, um, looking at their retention targets, whether they hit those in the diversity space. But I think for the most part, it is still business as usual. Companies are now more so focused on, um, you know, building a So, if your company isn't hiring so much, you can, you know, tap into online networks, for example, if you're looking to hire more women in tech, go on LinkedIn, work with self-identified organizations, reach out to lesbians who tech and see how you can engage with them. See if you can access their database or their mailing list while being transparent that you're on pause, you're not hiring, but you see an area where you can boost representation when you are hiring again. And so you're looking to build this pipeline and use it as an opportunity. Companies are now doing market analysis for their companies. Um, Where can you find talent in this space? Then bring it back to leadership when things die down. And if it comes with a cost, find a way to justify it and show the return on that cost. Um, So this is really a time to take a step back and approach diversity and inclusion in a very methodical and strategic way.
0: Mm. And so you're saying in terms of attracting and retaining uh, diverse talent to kind of really target some of those organizations um with the demographics that that you're seeking and that you'd like to bring on on your team, right? And in speaking of equality, it was recently uh Equal Pay Day, and we know that the wage gap widens with in regards to parental status. Mothers traditionally make less than fathers and race. Um, can you maybe talk about what gender and racial biases play the biggest roles in perpetuating the wage gap because it's 2020 and it's still here.
1: <laughs> That's very true. Um, it's 2020. We're still seeing a gender gap and I believe it's not until 2059, I, I think is the legitimate, uh, that we see that close in. But for a bit of background for, for listeners, Equal Payday, uh, it symbolizes how far into the year the average woman must work in order to earn what the average man earned the previous year. And that's regardless of experience or job type. Uh, So for this year, on average, full time working women across races in the U.S. earned 82 cents for every dollar a man earns and they missed out on nearly one trillion dollars each year because of the pay gap. That's an astronomical figure. Um, the stats are far better for a white and Asian women and as one would guess they're worse for black women, for Latinx women, for indigenous women. Um, but to answer your question, Holly, A myriad of factors impact the gender wage gap, and a number of esteemed economists have weighed in on this, but a few that come to mind, uh, gender bias in childcare. Women are more likely to have a motherhood penalty, uh, whereas men who come back to, well, first of all, men typically don't take off don't use parental leave but when they do and they come back to work they receive the fatherhood bonus employers are more likely to read fathers as more stable and committed to their work and they don't see that with women right they see children taking care of children as more of a burden for women and so that tanks how much they're that tanks their earnings and how much they're able to make it on an annual basis uh there's also Occupational segregation, uh, with more men in higher paid industries and women in obviously lower paid industries, and oftentimes gender biases and a barrier to entry within a particular labor market or a labor segment like tech or the sciences, they determine or at the very least, they strongly impact women's career choices. Um, And finally, bias in promotions. There is substantial evidence that men get promoted and. a far faster clip than women. So, I mean, it obviously makes sense that if men are ascending up the corporate ladder far more rapidly, um, they're also earning more than women. And to go back to your um, earlier statement, the gender wage gap also affects parents differently, as you said. I believe equal payday for mothers in the US compared to fathers in the US is on June 4th, so halfway into the year, and they make, as you said, 70 cents to uh, their, their male counterparts dollar.
0: Yeah, and that, that to me is so fascinating because I, I when women have a child, I think their pay decreases by 4% for every child. and When men have a child, their pay actually increases by 6% for every child that, that they have. Um, and I wonder again, bringing it back to COVID, now that it's really, you know, uh, key for dual-income earners to share the load of homeschooling and and remote work for for those of us who are lucky enough to be able to work remotely and maintain our jobs. Um, hopefully, you know, we'll be setting examples and, and normalizing caregiving for both men and women to help level the playing field. But I like how you said that. Parental leave is is also really key because if men use all of their parental leave, um, then that will kind of help level the gender playing field for right. both men and women because it won't be only be women who are out when they have a baby, but men as well, and that yes. kind of helps create more more equality there.
1: And it's also important to note that most women, most mothers with children at home work, I often hear um, those who are going to play devil's advocate say, well, women, they don't want to come back to the workforce. That's not true. 71% of mothers with children at home work and 40% of households with children, um, the mother is the sole or primary breadwinner. So they very much are coming back to the workplace. It's simply that their earnings are being hindered by the biases that come along with child care for women.
0: Oh, thank you for saying that. I, I really believe that it's not that women don't want to lead. It's just that right. workplace culture is not set up to, to help that's them achieve right. those positions of leadership. And, um, it there, I read a, a stat that's something like, I, it, I don't know if this is accurate. 80% of black women are the primary breadwinners yes. for yep. families. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's, that's huge. So the fact that, you know, this wage gap does exist, the fact that there is still bias surrounding um, women and ambition and wanting to lead, um, really eliminating those biases is key. And you know what, when we close the wage gap, it's not only good for women, it's good for us all. It's good for exactly
1: it's
0: Good for companies. It's good for business. It's good for the GDP. So um, I think, yeah, I think that that will be a key because- uh, economic empowerment, financial empowerment is women's empowerment. Um,
1: um, it's a win-win for everyone, right? Because when we talk about closing the wage gap, I think the first thing a number of people think is, oh, you want to take away money from men and give it to women. No, it's that we want to lift up women, which ultimately lifts the entire, the entire uh, economy. That includes men as well. It's not either or. The two aren't mutually exclusive.
0: Right. And women, I think, make 85% of the purchasing decisions. So exactly, if, if you put more money in women's hands, we have more spending power, which only boosts the economy more. And I have to say, I mean, I, I think that these biases, they're not only hurting women, these gender biases, mm-hmm. they're hurting men too. And millennials are saying they want parental leave. They want yes. to be able to um, spend more time with their children. So as this is shift is happening, um, I think it'll really make men happier as, as well to have a, a more balanced life. Can you recommend any, what we call it consciously unbiased micro progressions or small action steps that we can take in the workplace to, to create more equity and more belonging?
1: Yeah, I think oh, there's so many. First and foremost, I'd say number one is listening to understand. Um, And that seems so simple and so basic, but it's really key because I think that most people listen to reply, right? That's the standard way that most people communicate. Um, And so I think it's really about, especially if you're someone who's in a position of power and you're not in an underrepresented group, talk to the people who are, talk to people within your organization who are in those demographics. Really listen, ask them, how can I help you? I think it, it, and it and it sounds it sounds so simple, right? But I mean, something so simple can really go a long way in in making someone feel uh, included within the company and like they have a voice. Yeah,
0: yeah and I do. I just want to go back to what you said in the micro progression: listen mm-hmm. to understand rather than listen to respond. I think that's a good point. And I think often what happens is we're thinking about what we want to say when the other person is talking, rather than really listening. And also when we are having emotional conversations or difficult conversations or uncomfortable conversations and things such as race and inequality are uncomfortable to have those conversations for many of us. And I think when you feel that way, um, you, you, you almost become, uh, like you go into fight or flight mode when you feel, feel stressed in any way. And that, I mean, the brain research shows that, um, you start to become more, closed-minded and less open to be able to understand other people's points of view. So what you said before about really creating these cultures of, of, you know, care where you're talking to people, where you're interacting, where you're asking them how they really feel that once you lay that groundwork where everything doesn't have to be so heated or polarizing, then you're creating that space to better listen to people. Um,
1: Absolutely. You you said it so brilliantly, um, and far more eloquently than I. I mean I, I was talking with, I think it was Tim Ryan, the CEO of PWC. And he obviously has this huge CEO action network where a number of chief executives from Fortune 500 companies pledged to support um, diversity and inclusion initiatives and hit various DNI targets. Um, and he was saying that unconscious bias trainings often don't work because you're presenting people with numbers and you're saying, okay, well, we should hit this target. You know, we should have 14% of black people in this company because they 14% representation in the US. And so it's very easy for someone to become defensive or to be on the attack. Um, We often hear of the term mansplaining, but that can also, you know, that can translate to, you know, race planning or, or, any, or any other facet. But when you're talking to someone, you have that human connection and you're saying, okay, this is my colleague. This is someone I went out to grab drinks with. This is someone, you know, who helped me finish this paper um, or who was there, you know, by my side um, training me. And the person's a woman of color or someone of a different sexual orientation. They're saying, this is how I feel. This is my personal experience. It really kind of breaks down that boundary. And then you um, far more able to have that human-to-human connection, that human-to-human interaction.
0: You can learn more about our amazing guest and get show notes at consciouslyonbias.com slash listen. And we want to hear from you. Please subscribe and rate Breaking the Bias on iTunes and Spotify, and drop us a note to let us know if there's a topic that you'd really want to hear about or a guest that you'd love to see on the show. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias.